welcome everyone to another edition of Connect Series by Skills for Change. Uh, we have Dr. Wendy Soukier, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Strategy and Academic Director of the Diversity Institute at Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University with us today. And Dr. Soukier has been um, a huge supporter of Skills for Change and we have been partners on a number of different initiatives over the last several years. And Dr. Sugir, I just want to say that it is an absolute pleasure and honor to be interviewing you today. I've been, you know, just astounded by uh, the work that you do over the last couple of years that I've been in the sector. And I just want to thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, Skills for Change does such great work. It's, uh, it's really my privilege to be included. Thank you. So let's get right into it. Um, tell us bit about your background. I think typically speaking, when we see you at conferences, we, you know, it's the professional side of, uh, you know, um, uh, you're, you're providing uh, policy and um, uh, statistical analysis, but we don't really rarely hear the personal side of Dr. Soukier. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what there is to tell in the beginning I was born. Um, <laughs> The uh, I've had a I've had a sort of circuitous path, I guess, mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why I'm so passionate about some of these issues. So um, I was actually born in Toronto, but uh, uh, grew up in places like Burlington and St. Catharines. My mm -hmm. mom, small town Ontario girl, uh, who worked as a a medical secretary. My father was a Holocaust survivor who, mm. in fact, he was Jewish until mm. um, the day they were getting married. Um, and so, you know, uh, from a very, very early age, I was quite aware of the challenges that immigrants and refugees and mm. with PTSD and, and right. other things um, faced. Uh, he died when I was just before my 10th birthday. So I was raised by mm. a who was the medical mm. secretary um and you know so i'm i'm sort of i i i didn't i'm acutely aware of the impact of socioeconomic privilege you know when i mm -hmm. my upbringing to my daughters for example mm -hmm. i didn't know what an engineer was until i had a master's degree in history and was working with them i had no right. about um, the range of occupations and mm -hmm. Uh, opportunities that existed. I had no social connections. I mean, my mother worked for doctors, but her social network was mostly um, other stories and, yeah. and, you know, people in the community. So I think in retrospect, you know, when I think about my background, I think it's been a real asset in terms of understanding how important employment is, particularly mm -hmm. for newcomers, understanding right how trauma can have a huge impact on people's mm -hmm. lives, understanding in a, in a very visceral way the impact of socioeconomic status in terms right. of privilege, uh, quite yeah. apart from other kinds of, of privilege. And it was really lucky because I think my parents were very much ahead of the, ahead of the times. They were very um, active, the civil rights um, mm -hmm. um, advocates and I think I grew up with a really strong sense that if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem and, and of course 
you know, one of the big lessons of the Holocaust is mm -hmm. standardism and how right. dangerous it is to just mm -hmm. buy and watch things Stand happen. By and, so, yeah. right. you know, I, in that respect, I had, um, I had sort of a family context that, that I think equipped me well with certain kinds of understanding, but also resilience because mm -hmm. to, from the time I was 10, I had to earn the money in order to buy my clothes. And the way I clothes was I worked for as a babysitter and then I could buy material. And then based on having been able to buy the fabric, right. sold my clothes, right? So you, know, like it, you have a really different perspective on life than, yeah. for example, my daughter who was, you know, shopping at home at the age of 14. <laughs> It's, uh, so I think that had a big difference, uh, had a big impact. I think I really, really benefited, like, unbelievably, um, mm. the, um, the encouragement I had from teachers, because mm -hmm. I'm very young. I started high school when I was 12 and university when I was 16. Right. It was often, you know, a bit odd and bullied and so on, and it was really teachers both in um, in school and then in in university mm -hmm. interest in me and helped me navigate um, at least some of the opportunities and that's you know education was always 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 a priority right. in the family even though um, I would say my mother was ill-equipped to provide advice yeah. pathways career uh, you know and so on but very fortunate because I had a number of, of teachers and then professors who really um, supported me and my education you know I started um, I still believe very strongly you should study what you love I studied history and English I came mm -hmm. to Toronto to do a master's right. degree three I was in a PhD in history for about a week <laughs> <laughs> I realized I had made a it I probably uh, was was not sufficiently committed and I started working in government right and you know through that process, I started mm -hmm. to better understand what the opportunities were mm -hmm. in a much broader range of fields than straight academia or being a lawyer or a, a right. teacher, which was really my full full kind of understanding um, when I was young and then one led to another and I managed to kind of um, work my way into the tech field, even though wow. history degree. <laughs> and then I went to, uh, I went back to school to do my MBA and my PhD. So I also had the perspective of what it's like to be an adult learner with yeah. a single mother with a kid and trying yeah. to navigate all those things. So, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways, my, my education, my education is my strength without, mm -hmm. question. you know, I learned um, all the really useful skills I have, I learned studying history and English. My mm -hmm. gave me some vocabulary. My PhD taught me a bit about research methods. Right. Do you think that combined with this sort of circuitous path? Yeah. Um, also gave me um, certain kinds of understandings that you don't learn from books. Yeah, absolutely. And so, how did that uh, then? Um, uh, how did that translate into you, um, you know, uh, starting the Diversity Institute? How did that come about 
um, from the wealth of experience in your educational background that you had then to shift over into the space of diversity and to actually found this uh, diversity institute? Well, it was, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was, again, uh, happens in a way. Um, right after the Montreal massacre, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, man walked into the university and separated the men from the women and killed yeah. um, 14 uh, young women. And then mm -hmm. it was, um, I, I got very involved with gun control. And, mm -hmm. and I was uh, on the December 6th committee Mm -hmm. um, at Ryerson and there were people working on violence against women, there were people working on gun control, there were people working on women in technology. And my colleague at the time, um, he died a couple of years ago, Peter Hiscox, who was an engineer. Mm -hmm. was in, in these meetings, he was the one who had brought me in because there was a big push after the Montreal massacre to advance women in technology. Right. And I remember very clearly the committee had come up with a recommendation and the recommendation was that all first year engineers at Ryerson would get a module on professional oh. ethics and equity issues oh, wow. to make them more receptive to the idea of women in technology. And right. at that point, like I would say eight to 10% of the mm -hmm. students in engineering were men. Right. I still remember really clearly. They're having this discussion. I'm like an English history major with an MBA, right? And uh, and they said, so who's going to do this? And the harassment at the time said, I'm not going in there. I'm not going in there. And Peter said, uh, get Wendy to do it. She'll do anything. She goes into rooms full of angry men with guns. Um, so that was my introduction wow. around diversity and inclusion. I had no background, a bit of, uh, you know, historical analysis of, of uh, women. I'd done mm. a on sexual harassment. I was sort of familiar with the issues, but right. it really was just being thrown into the fire mm -hmm. uh, by this committee because they figured that I had a tough enough skin to do the work. And so... I started, you know, from scratch doing research on women in technology and what the issues were. And I had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how I would engage with these kids right. mm -hmm. to get them to really think about the issue. Yeah. But I was a Trekkie, so I used Star Trek because Star Trek was so the original. So <laughs> it was really ahead of its time. Right. Yeah way that it was grappling mm -hmm. both with gender issues as yeah. well as with race. race and what I found was with this particular group mm -hmm. very high percentage of racialized people mm -hmm. very low percentage of women but right. if you started making the connections right. between sexism and racism yeah lights would go off so I did that for I did that for a few years on mm -hmm. top of my regular job and then an opportunity came up to present at a conference. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll do some research on the work mm -hmm. that I'm doing right. and present it at the conference. And it was very clear that there was huge demand for research in mm -hmm. the women in technology. Right. And again, one thing led to another and we had opportunities to do more and more research in the area. And that's where the Diversity Institute came from. It was in the School of Information Technology Management. It was originally wow. focused 
primarily on women and technology issues. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it, it started to take on a broader and broader um, agenda as right. it brought in more colleagues. So mm -hmm. that's sort of, we were kind of ahead of our time because it was mm. 1999 um, yeah. when the Institute was formally founded. And that was quite a while before there was a lot of discussion in business schools in particular about these issues. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because um, even uh, for that to happen, even back when you're talking about the engineering and program and, um, you know, making it more inclusive for women, even that I feel like is probably was probably way ahead of its time to be thinking along those lines, um, you know, and I wonder how, how much has it actually changed now in the engineering field? Uh, you still see a lot of men in the field. It's, it's one of the biggest, I've, I've learned some of the biggest lessons in my life from my biggest failures. And, you know, after 30 years of advocating around women in engineering, 30 mm -hmm. years since the Montreal massacre, right. fewer women in computer science today, and only marginally more in engineering than there were 30 wow. years ago. And the lesson in that and, and part of the reason why I'm so passionate about evidence-based change models, intentions mm -hmm. and rainbow posters and astronauts going into the schools and saying yeah. STEM is good have no impact. Right. Very intentional strategies. You need mm -hmm. accountability frameworks and you need to really hold people's feet to the fire if you want to drive change. And so mm -hmm. for me, a lot of the lessons around what we need to do mm -hmm. uh, advanced diversity and inclusion are exactly a result of what didn't work right trying to promote uh, women in in engineering because you know as as you said the the progress has been glacial yeah absolutely in particular um i see the shift of like founding the diversity institute and then you uh you know have a particular focus in strengthening programming for women in entrepreneurs so kind of that shift, like you said, that it, it started off in the IT um, sector, but really moving towards um, entrepreneurship. Why this particular um, area? So that's another really good question. I mean, in um, I think it was early 2000s, um, a, a group of us worked on a book called Innovation Nation, which focused on profiling entrepreneur success stories. And it was horribly difficult to find out of the, I think we did 25, to find even two or three women in the tech sector uh, who were entrepreneurs that we could, we could profile. We ended up with um, uh, uh, a one young tech entrepreneur one older tech entrepreneur. We pulled in a woman who was the head of AT&T because, you know, she was head of a tech firm. Right. And um, that may actually have been, it may have been three out of 25 who were, who were women. Wow. Or I think there was one other, maybe four out of 25. And it took a lot of work to find. Wow. So my interest in, in innovation processes and how you drive change, as well as entrepreneurship, it dates back about 20 years, plus 
very um, at the, at the time one of my big insights and and something that I continue to really push is the fact that entrepreneurship fundamentally has nothing to do with technology or uh, making money. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, you know, I was working as a social activist with lots wow. of activists on on gun control. I also had um, an ex-husband and daughter who were artists. Mm-hmm. And my observation, and this really is back to, to 2002 or thereabouts, was that the characteristics that distinguish the entrepreneurs that we profiled in the book, mm-hmm. social activists that I knew, and the artists that I lived with, yeah. um, were, were much more similar than the characteristics of, say, an entrepreneur and the CEO of a bank. Right, right. That whole, that whole framing of innovation and entrepreneurship mm-hmm. um, driving change, making a difference right. as opposed to Silicon Valley really right. back about 20 years. And it's something that I've been, um, you know, working away at. We did research on immigrant entrepreneurs. We did mm-hmm. brand, we've run for probably eight years, we've run programs actually. Mm-hmm programs for um, entrepreneurs, particularly um, racialized people and some women, Uh, you know, summer company, we ran for five or six years, we started the with you the the work with um, uh, women, uh, marginalized women entrepreneurs, we added in artists, you know, we now are running about seven or eight programs across the country. So I also felt I had kind of a visceral um, understanding of that entrepreneurial process, not just because of my experience, but also mm-hmm. the work we had done in coaching and developing entrepreneurs across a very wide range of, of uh, sectors. So mm-hmm. again, while my research wasn't uh, uh, particularly focused on women, it was focused right. on innovation and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And, and there was enough there that you could see the the challenges and also the opportunities. Right, and and so sh- shifting to kind of the current situation and the pandemic and affecting, how, how do you see it um, affecting um, entrepreneurship and opportunities for women and racialized women? And uh, do you see that, you know, being an opportunity for women to, um, you know, kind of, uh, those that have been really negatively impacted by this pandemic in terms of the workforce? Um, it's, it's mixed. COVID is crushing, right? COVID yeah. has killed people, destroyed yeah. families, ruined entire sectors, and, and, and the job loss is, yeah. is astronomical. And when you look at women-led businesses, when you look at businesses owned by racialized people, particularly, Black entrepreneurs, when you look mm-hmm. at Indigenous people, some of the characteristics around the structure of those mm-hmm. businesses, they're more likely to be in services, they're more likely to be small, they're more likely to be underfinanced, mean that the impact of COVID on those businesses is far greater than on mainstream right. um, small, medium enterprises. The way in which programs were initially designed was very mm-hmm. focused on small medium enterprises large right. 
tech sector. To their credit, they pivoted and mm -hmm. have developed a much broader range of programs. Mm -hmm. so I think there's no question that, um, you know, the negative impact of COVID has been massive. Mm -hmm. That being said, mm -hmm. you know, the small glimmer of a silver lining yeah. is around the opportunities that have been created. So right. I was looking at a, a, a nomination from one woman, for example, who uh, before COVID, had her products sold in six mm -hmm. uh, grocery stores around Ontario. Right. As she pivoted to online, mm -hmm. end of COVID, she had her products being sold in 60 um, grocery stores. Wow. Uh, you know, we've seen um, people uh, change their products, you know, move sewing aprons to making masks, mm -hmm. moving from um, you know, auto parts to ventilate. So there's no question that necessity is the mother of invention, that COVID has accelerated mm -hmm. the rate of digitization that, and, and as soon as you go digital, then you have far bigger opportunities in terms of global markets and, and so on. But it is important to recognize that, yeah. you know, that is not really balanced. That doesn't really balance out the, the challenges. I think I've always thought that entrepreneurship is an incredibly powerful pathway mm -hmm. to economic um, inclusion. Even if you don't end up starting your own business or creating a lot of jobs, just the skills that you develop right. through, um, through trying um, or going through an entrepreneurship training program or an mm. English um, are, are incredibly valuable. And so I'm a big proponent of the idea that entrepreneurship training is also a form of experiential learning. Right. If you want to uh, work in a traditional business, you will develop really valuable mm -hmm. skills. And as you know, when we're looking at newcomers, I think it's a, a really powerful model. Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I led I led a, a large project focused on Syrian refugees, the Ryerson University Lifeline Syria Challenge. We raised $5 million and, and privately sponsored um, over 400 Syrian refugees. And my observation was that the men in particular, um, you know, they spoke seven words of English. They wanted to work, whether it was driving Uber or, mm -hmm. or raking leaves, or they wanted to do something. And, right. you know, on my father's own trajectory, mm -hmm. it rang true to me that if we create opportunities for people to do things that they think are valuable mm -hmm. at the same time that they're learning English, they're developing cultural competencies, they're mm -hmm. developing social networks, and they're making money, I think it's a far more interesting and powerful model than right. someone in the classroom six yeah. months yeah. when we know that often they emerge with marginally more English than they would have got if they'd just gone out and drove Uber. Yeah. So, so I really, I, I think there's some really interesting dimensions of mm -hmm. training and entrepreneurship skills mm -hmm. that are particularly valuable um, at this particular time in our history. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And so greater efforts are required to support entrepreneurial activity, especially for women-owned SMEs in Canada to emerge stronger, more inclusive, and equal in post-COVID era. So um, to achieve this, it's key to draw on different stakeholders um, from public, private, and nonprofit sector, as well as civil society to draw on their own unique positions of influence to affect gender responsive measures. So how can we work to, you know, all that to say, how can we work to bring all the players together in a cohesive way to affect the change for women entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the government's uh, women entrepreneurship strategy is actually quite brilliant, not just because I benefited from it, but because it's one of the first strategies I've seen uh, with a, a gender and diversity focus that takes a horizontal approach. So yes, of course, they've set aside a certain amount of money for the women entrepreneurship funds for mm -hmm. the system for the organizations that have women in their title. But what I think is interesting and, and frankly more powerful than the $5 billion they've committed to investing mm -hmm. is commitments across government. Because think about it, you know, there's, there's, there are many, many billions of dollars spent on economic development, on research and right. on environment and various other things. And if instead of just thinking about programs for women, immigrants, indigenous people, and so on, pots of money that we're going to disseminate to those people, mm -hmm. if we take a focus on creating an inclusive system right. where we have capacity for those people to um, engage in government procurement mm -hmm. or to access economic development funds or research and development and shred credits, whether they're, you know, in urban areas or rural areas, if you take that whole of government approach mm -hmm. and to advancing women and diverse entrepreneurs, that's powerful. That's way more powerful than just setting up, you know, a fund here or a fund there. And, and I do believe, especially based on my experience with um, women in engineering and computer science, mm -hmm need that kind of integrated strategy with clear metrics, with accountability mm -hmm. frameworks, and with everyone at the table, you know, and it's kind of an audacious goal, but they said, you know, we're investing this money because we want to double the number of women entrepreneurs by 2025. And, and of course, that was pre-COVID and right. the world, but, but actually setting, setting goals and putting mm -hmm. a ground I think makes a big difference and you know even though I know their stretch goals I feel the same way about the federal government's 50-30 uh, initiative where they're they're challenging organizations to ensure that 50% of their boards are women and 30% yeah. otherwise diverse you know if you don't set targets if mm -hmm. you if you don't have everybody working together, if you don't have accountability frameworks yeah. that the talk about gender equality and diversity is just, mm -hmm. and so I'm really interested in the mechanisms that we use mm -hmm. to translate that into real action. And I think money, frankly, mm -hmm. if you use the government's funding power for procurement mm -hmm. as well as their regulatory um, influence, yeah you can actually uh, drive change. And I think consumers are demanding 
a lot more. So many companies have, have jumped to support uh, Black North, for example, and made concrete commitments to right. um, increasing hiring and so on, is not a function of government regulation. It's a function mm. of where they see public opinion going. Right, right. And so uh, staying on the topic of the pandemic, what are some skills that you're seeing um, that are needed for those entering the workforce in the COVID and post-COVID environment? Well, you know, I don't think the skills have dramatically shifted. I mean, I think we're still talking about essential skills, you know, communication, social and emotional right. intelligence. Right. I, I would put a greater premium on adaptability and resilience. Absolutely. And the ability to pivot. I think right. things are, are critically important. And of course, uh, digital skills are more important now than ever before. So I think, I think, you know, I think the buckets are still kind of the same, but I would say there's much more, um, there's much more importance that I would at least uh, place on entrepreneurial skills, creativity, adaptability kinds of right. skills on the one hand and digital skills on the other. And do you see that impacting either, you know, one way or another um, new immigrants that are coming into the country? Because obviously, um, you know, skills are one thing, but access is another. And so something that we've seen at Skills for Change is that oftentimes the uh, immigrants that have come in that are now trying to pivot can't is, you know, there's a family of uh, individuals and one phone. Uh, that's how they're using their technology. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it's a really good point. I think that one of the thing COVID, things COVID has done is really exacerbated inequality and particularly the digital divide. And the digital mm. divide is not just about access to high-speed broadband, which, of course, is a big issue in rural communities and we have to build more, but it's also about portability. It's right. about having the devices. It's about having um, the skills and especially with the shift to homeschooling, it's reached crisis proportions in, in many communities. And, and for sure, it's something that we have to, we have to really um, move quickly to, to address mm -hmm. point. And, um, and, uh, I guess this the final question is that um, what are some of the overall trends, you know, either related to COVID or automation or some of the things that uh, we know that um, have impacted uh, the workforce and um, job trends? Um, what are what, what are some of the trends we should be um, uh, kind of paying attention to when it comes to employment and immigration? Well, I think that um, you know, I think as I said, a lot of a lot of the structural inequality that previ previously existed has just been intensified. I've already mm -hmm. the, you know yeah. the experience of women. We also know that many of the industries most affected by COVID are ones which had high percentages of racialized people and Indigenous people. And so the, the impact of COVID is not just from the point of view of the illness, mm -hmm. um, but from the point of view of the economic impact has been very, uh, very uneven without, without question. So we need to make sure whatever recovery plans we have um, take, take that into account. I think as well, there's a lot of uncertainty about 
what the new normal will be. You know, people talk about rebuilding better, but it's mm -hmm. it's clear to me that some large employers are taking advantage of COVID to restructure and to uh, eliminate jobs, not come back. So, you know, I saw an interesting stat that suggested the retail sector had grown in terms of revenues, but declined in terms of uh, employment. Of course. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, a lot of the, the organizations that shifted to technology are, are, are going to rehire, um, you know, some banks are laying off 5% yeah. force and shifting to ANI enabled uh, tools and so on. So I do think that, um, that COVID has accelerated mm -hmm. So digitization and the deployment of technology, which is is going to eliminate some jobs, and as yeah. you suggested, increases the uh, the demand for reskilling, upskilling, mm -hmm. yeah. and and so on. And I think you know, from my point of view, even though I work at a university, I think the post secondary sector um, is only capable of doing so much. And I really think we need to look at new innovative models that allow people to upskill and reskill right. quickly and adapt to the workforce. And I think, you know, the other thing that is very important to me, you know, with our work with the Future Skills Center, mm -hmm. is also to stop talking about fixing the, the job seekers. Right. Um, yeah. Because yeah. as you know, Mm -hmm. It's it takes two to tango. Exactly. And yeah, market. Yeah, the market for skills is affected in part by supply right. and by demand. Exactly. And we know without question, without question, if you have a foreign sounding last name, you're 20% less likely to get a call back for an interview at a large corporation, 30% less likely to get a call back mm -hmm. an SME. Yeah even if you were born in Canada and educated in Canada. Yep. Like that is systemic discrimination, period. And, and we have to find ways to challenge that. We also know that often employers hire in their own image. And, you know, we had an interesting, really interesting and successful project that resulted mm -hmm. in a large company coming to me and saying, you know, we need to uh, we need to get universities to introduce a course in 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 Pega. And I said, okay, you know, I'll introduce you to the dean of computer science and right. people. And you know, it'll take two years to get it approved if you get it approved, because like university professors don't like to learn anything new and they don't know this. <laughs> And then, you know, two years after that, you might have some, some graduates and I'll do that. You can do that. Right. But while you're doing that, yeah. why don't we also look at how hard it is to learn PEGA? Like, can exactly. I learn it if I don't have a computer science degree? Right. Yeah. If I have a computer science degree, can I learn it in a month? Can I mm -hmm. learn it in two months? Mm -hmm. And what we did was we developed a program specifically targeting internationally educated people with technology backgrounds, you know, people with master's degrees in computer science working as security guards or driving cab, right. developed a, a two-month program in, mm -hmm. in collaboration with the supplier. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the program, um, it was like 88% of the people who went through it were certified and employed. Yeah. So for me, I'm not just 
talking about our advanced digital and professional training program, which I love and I think mm-hmm. incredibly, um, an incredibly useful vehicle. But those kinds of initiatives, right. both in companies and, and by third parties, I think are really the future of how we, how we better address um, skills development. Yeah. And at the same time, we have a huge push on trying to get employers to yeah. think their assumption mm-hmm. about what they need and who they need and to focus more on people's assets yeah. rather than their deficits. Yeah, absolutely. It was going to be my last question is around um, employers and employer accountability and how do we um, how do we, you know, work with employers to understand that exactly what you, you said and um, around, you know, really taking the, um, taking the image out and, and just focusing on the skill set and how do you build the skill set, but also um, looking at how are employers going to be um, in the process of, you know, really embedded in the process of reskilling and upskilling those individuals as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the things that's really important is, of course, some employers have a, you know, commitment to social justice and corporate social responsibility. And we see more and more who are, who are stepping up for those reasons. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, private sector companies um, want to make money. And I do still believe that there is a very strong business case. Yeah doing this well and doing this right. And I think a lot of employers, if, if you can lay that out for them and you can give them the tools. Mm-hmm. So we didn't go this big company and say, you know, you're, you're a racist. You should be looking at hiring immigrants instead right. of for new university graduates. Yeah. What we did was we actually worked with them to design a solution to get them what they needed. Right. And I that having a solutions focus yeah. rather than, you know, blame game is, is the way to move things forward. Not that I hesitate for a moment to, you know, call racism, racism, or sexism, sexism, or homophobia, homophobia. But I just feel that um, often uh, interactions with employers sort of stop at that point where yeah. people say, you know, the problem is the employers, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. And my approach, partly because I'm in a business school, mm. is to look on where the, where the where are the obstacles? How can we easy easy exactly. yeah. for the employers to do the right thing? Yeah, and I think there are lots of tools that that can help provide those sort of incentives and supports to move us forward. Absolutely. And I just have one final question, and just on a personal note, we've been asking all the participants of the Connect series question on mental health and uh, that we know that a lot of individuals have struggled in isolation over the past several months. And so how have you been managing your mental health and well-being during this time? And, um, you know, just ways that you've been able to kind of uh, lift it when there's just been so much, uh, you know, uh, stress and trauma and, and tragedy over the last several months. So it's interesting. I, you know, most of my stress comes from, you know, having a very large workforce with very different needs and mm-hmm. you know, people who didn't have air conditioning or were working out of their cars, right. oh, wow. you know, that stuff. From yeah. a personal perspective, I, I have to say I'm 
happy as a clam, you know, like I'm, I'm someone who is very pleased not to have to get dressed in the morning. <laughs> I'm someone who is, is tethered to my computer, you know, 18 hours a day and so on. And many dogs and a cat, you know, I, and I have the resources to, to buy what I need when I need it and, and so on. So you know, the, the biggest um, challenges for me are my, my daughter is in the States and she mm. used to come home kind of once a month and right. I haven't really seen her much at all. That's been tough. Um, you know, I have friends who I would rather see in person than Zoom. Yeah. From the point of view of work, I'm just very privileged because the kind of work that I do um, has been very easily accommodated. Right in the in the in the pandemic and I think that you know the result for the diversity institute is probably that we're going to have way more flexibility in terms of how we organize work so that people who you know, have one person who is like a, a unrepentant extrovert and she's right. <laughs> struggling so much yeah because she doesn't have the social contact so right. for someone like her we have to have opportunities to interact with other people. Absolutely. I'm happy working at home most of the time. And then right. you've got people who are in between. So yeah. the big the big thing in terms of ensuring people are happy and healthy is, is going to be flexibility and choice and yeah. making sure that you know we're keeping an eye out for each other. Absolutely. And I think it is an opportunity and has been for a lot of employers to really see that, um, look at those individual needs, hopefully, and um, be able to understand that you're going to get the best work out of people when you are flexible. And you do recognize that each person has some, uh, you know, individual needs that um, now I think are a little bit more understandable to support than when we were all in the office at the same time. <laughs> So thank you so much, Dr. Sukier. It was really just such a pleasure to um, chat with you. And I'm always just uh, absorb all the information. I'll probably rewatch this a number of times because I, I got so much out of it. And I really hope that our viewers and our listeners um, really get a lot out of this conversation. And I just always appreciate the support that you've had for Skills for Change and the work that we've done collaboratively together over the last several years and um, hope that it continues um, in the years to come. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated the, uh, the opportunity and, uh, you know, occupation hazard. We talk, we talk for without breathing in large, large chunks. <laughs> so anyways, I hope, uh, I hope you're right that it's interesting to other people besides you me but <laughs> grateful for being included thank you so much